to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. In October of 1939, Winston Churchill said of Russia that I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. The key is Russian national interest. Today, almost 25 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we could say exactly the same thing about Russia. The Russia that Gorbachev ushered in as the Cold War ended is seemingly a far cry from the Russia today of Vladimir Putin. What happened? Did the country change? Did the people change? Or were the current tendencies there all along? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Arkady Ostrovsky. Arkady Ostrovsky is a Russian-born journalist whose articles for the Financial Times were the first to warn of Russia's impending takeover by the KGB. He's reported from Moscow for over 10 years for the Financial Times and joined The Economist in 2007. He's currently the Russia and Eastern European editor for The Economist, and he's the author of a new book entitled The Invention of Russia, From Gorbachev's Freedom to Putin's War. Arkady Ostrovsky, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you here. One of the things that you talk about that, that is so fascinating within the broader context of trying to understand Russia then and now is you talk about it being a country where ideas matter, a country where ideas have significance. Talk a little bit about that first. Well, Russia is um, a very uh, idea-centric country where words, and literature uh, really matter a great deal. Um, I was um, I first started thinking about it when I was translating Tom Stoppard's Coast of Utopia, uh, a great uh, trilogy um, uh, about Russian 19th century thinkers. Uh, and one of them, a uh, Russian literary critic, says in it that uh, um, literature can replace, can actually become a Russia. Um, and that literature carries sort of a lot of social purpose and, and fulfills the role that in other countries is, is filled by institutions and uh, parties, etc. So um, I just started looking at it uh, through the prism um, of, of the media um, and, and the words, uh, and it was, um, uh, it, it proved out to be sort of a very fruitful um, uh, approach because it, suddenly, you know, that complicated story started um, uh, unravel a bit uh, uh, before me, um, and you know, words had enormous importance uh, in the Soviet Union because uh, the Soviet Union was, you know, the Bolshevik country uh, was based on uh, the idea of utopia. Uh, on the books, you know, during the Soviet era, people studied Marx and Lenin the way they studied the Bible and Torah. Um, so that that has been my my approach. And then in the 1990s, of course, it became television that replaced the printed word and and uh, and became the the dominant medium. Um, so I wanted to tell the story of what happened in Russia between that extraordinary time of hope aspiration and optimism in the late 80s when I was a student, when the country started to open up, when there was this enormous sense of hope and um, and promise, how did we get to today? Um, even though, 
you know, when Russia is seen as a threat and as a challenge, uh, security threat to its neighbors, a challenge to the United States, uh, and I believe a threat to its own people. Um, How did we get here when we didn't really have any one moment, any one sort of counter-revolutionary turn we can point out to and say, okay, this is where it all changed? But one of the things you talk about is that there was really a kind of fatal flaw that was inherent in the way the transition took place under Gorbachev. There was. um, There was more than one. Um, I mean, you could look at economy, you could look at politics, but what, again, what I concentrated on was was the media. The flaw, uh, one of the flaws was that on the way to open up the country, on the way to tell the truth, a lot of people who were in charge of the Russian media used the lies uh, or half-truth. They couldn't still, you know, perestroika and glasnost, that period of reform and glasnost as they're opening up the media, should not be mistaken for a sudden freedom of speech when everybody could just say whatever they wanted and, and report the news. The newspapers of the time uh, were about essays, they were, they were about opinion, they were about uh, looking at history, uh, they were about destalinization, but they were not really about reflecting uh, the reality. Now, that was the, the fundamental problem, is that the people who came to lead Russia to, um, to what they thought was, was a new era uh, basically were unwinding the tape of history back to the time when they thought things went wrong. And for that generation, for Gorbachev and the lieutenants of Perestroika around him, the time when things went wrong was the time... Uh, When they were in their 20s, it was 1968, it was when the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia and crashed the reform efforts of the government in in Czechoslovakia. Uh, And they thought, okay, so that was the point when things went wrong. So why don't we go back to that idea of socialism with a human face? Why don't we try to give the Soviet Union a new lease of life? And they didn't really pay attention to reality uh, which was unraveling before them. They didn't pay attention to economy um, and to the facts. They lived in sort of little, almost sort of a fantasy world of the past, thinking they could go back to that bygone era. Um, and that continued throughout the 90s. Every time um, a new generation would come, they would try to look for this point on the track of history. This is kind of Russia's favorite term a track of history as if it was a railway which could be traveled backwards and forwards on, uh, trying to get back to that crucial fork in the road where Russia had gone on the wrong track. To what extent was the response and, and a kind of triumphalism on the part of the West, to what extent was that impactful in the way this evolved? So, look, that clearly didn't help. Um, I completely understand why on the 25th of December, 91, when Gorbachev stepped down, when he abdicated from power effectively um, and bid farewell to the Soviet Union, uh, George Bush Sr. uh, addressed the American nation straight after Gorbachev, said the Cold War... 
uh, had been won and we have prevailed. Uh, and in his speech to the American nation, uh, those words were uh, repeated several times, the words of victory. I understand why that happened, and, and you know, America had its own narrative, own narrative to, to follow. The trouble with that was that uh, American and, and Western European leaders didn't really appreciate the scale of change that was before them. And they didn't quite appreciate what impact those words of triumphalism and uh, victory would, Im would have on the, uh, on the Russian people, particularly when people were going through economic hardship. So those words, um, and uh, I quote, by the grace of God, America won the Cold War, uh, was what Bush said. Uh, those, uh, th that sentiment, that triumphalism, was later used very successfully and skillfully by Putin, who started to first project that sense of humiliation uh, onto the whole country. And to be fair, you know, that humiliation was only felt really strongly by, by the KGB, which had been humiliated, uh, which had been defeated uh, in the early 90s. But he projected that sense of humiliation within the KGB, which was uh, his alma mater, to, onto the whole country. And then having done that, he built up on that the narrative of resurgence, the, the narrative of revenge, the narrative of Russia coming back, uh, from the cold, and him as the great leader making Russia great again. Uh, re you know, sometimes when I hear the rhetoric of, of uh, Donald Trump, uh, it just sounds so familiar. One of the things that that played into, and you talk about this as being two traditional Russian archetypes, that there's always been this ongoing battle between reformists and nationalists, that, that that's in the kind of Russian DNA. Well, I don't believe in DNA uh, and sort of don't believe in determinism, but it certainly has been part of Russian history for a very long time. I mean, the debate that uh, uh, has been shaping Russia in the 19th century and before was always between those who believed in reforms, and the reforms mostly meant orientation towards the West, that Russia needs uh, to become part of the Western world and embrace modernization, and those who believed Russia has its own path uh, to follow, and it's a unique, orthodox, uh, Christian uh, civilization uh, which uh, should follow its own path. Uh, you know, it, it became, uh, in the 1990s, became a violent struggle between those two camps because the nationalists, I mean, that might sound strange, but the nationalists uh, made this alliance, this coalition with the hardcore communists uh, who completely uh, threw away all the idea about internationalism and, and the global revolution and all those things, and, and became, um, like Stalin himself, became a nationalist and imperialist. So there was a, a genuine fight between those nationalists um, and, and the westernized, uh, westernizing sort of reformers. And that fight was 
before the audiences on, on TV screen of the CNN in October 93 when Yeltsin uh, had a standoff with the parliament which was seized by those uh, nationalists. Uh, we remember those uh, extraordinary footage of tanks uh-huh. shelling uh, with, with uh, empty shells, uh, shelling the, the, the House of Parliament, the, the White House. Now, uh, we thought at the time that that kind of nationalist part uh, of the political spectrum has really been defeated. And it hadn't been until uh, 2013, 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and started a war in eastern Ukraine, that I realized in writing this book that, in fact, those nationalist forces not only hadn't gone, uh, hadn't been defeated, they simply sort of were simmering under the surface, but they came back, they were brushed off, and they became uh, the winners uh, in, in the last two years in Russia, which is a very disturbing thought. To what extent does Putin understand these underlying issues? How much of it is of, of his actions are reactive, and how much of it really reflects a keen understanding of some of the issues that you're talking about? Uh, th- that's a very, <laughs> that's a very good, that's a million dollar question. Um, I think it's both. Um, uh, Putin is a reactive politician. He is a very good tactician. Um, you know, he, people say often he doesn't have a strategy. Maybe he doesn't have a strategy, but he moves so fast that his tactical moves uh, become a strategy of their own. You know, mm-hmm. he can uh, act very, very rapidly. Just remember the way that Russia first got involved in Syria and then suddenly made an announcement that it was withdrawing from it. I mean, no Western politician could possibly make uh, those moves quite so quickly. So, yes, in some ways he is responding to the situation and, and the annexation of Crimea uh, and the war in Georgia were uh, responses uh, to both of those former Soviet republics drifting westwards uh, or the Western institution drifting eastwards, uh, if, if you will. Um, it was also a response against protests that took place in Moscow in the winter of 2012 when tens of thousands of middle-class educated people came out of the streets demanding uh, modernization, demanding a new nation-state. And he trumped those uh, with, uh, with uh, not just force, but with this idea, again, idea being so important and ideology being so important, he trumped with the idea of imperial nationalism. And he did that because he does understand that dynamic. He does understand how powerful uh, in, in a former empire, how powerful the idea of national imperialism can be. And that's what he appealed to. He also understands, coming back to, to something else you've talked about, he also understands how to use the media and the importance of television in particular. Completely. The very first thing that Putin did when he came to power was to seize control of the television. That was before, in a way, and that was a precondition for him taking control over the commanding heights of the economy and consolidating his power. He had to control the narrative. He had to control people's, people's minds. And television in Russia is, is uh, now completely controlled and owned by the state. 
uh, he used the remote control um, as his sort of uh, skipper, as, as his main tool of power. Boris Nemtsov, um, a, a wonderful uh, politician, a liberal Russian politician who was murdered outside the Kremlin uh, just over a year ago, uh, told me that when he visited Putin soon after his inauguration as, as a president, the only object which he saw on Putin's desk was a television remote control. And that was very telling detail, uh, because that's how Putin deals, uh, deals with power. He constructs, uh, invents reality, invents a narrative, which is then turns uh, in, into real events. Uh, his friend, Italian, former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, once said that what's on TV didn't happen. Now, Putin took it a step further and made it into what didn't happen can be made to happen by the power of television, and that's what we saw in, in Ukraine, for example. To what extent has any social media made any penetration in Russia, and do you see that as having an impact over time? The social media was very important, and still is very important in Russia, and, you know, and not just, obviously, in, in Russian political process, but we, you know, we saw how important social media was uh, during the Arab Spring. Uh, it played a similar, or started to play a similar role in Russia during those protests in 2011-2012, which some saw as sort of a new uh, Russian spring. Um, Again, Putin dealt with it in a quite ingenious way, uh, different from the way the Chinese deal with the internet and the social media. The Chinese just impose a sort of a firewall and effectively ban uh, the uh, access to uh, uh, service providers outside China. Uh, Putin uh, didn't do that, uh, but he deluged the sort of the Kremlin uh, deluged the internet with its own messages, with its own trolls, with its own content, creating this uh, sort of disorienting noise uh, where uh, there are no facts, there is no truth, there are so many versions of events that. A reader or, or you know the internet user simply gets lost. So um, again, he dealt with it by the power of um, words and ideas rather than simply mechanically switching it off, if you like. Is Putin in a position where he has to keep upping the ante in terms of this nationalism that we talked about before? That there are just more and more internal problems to cover up, and certainly the decline in the price of oil being perhaps the, one of the penultimate problems, that, that the nationalism card has to be played over and over and over again, and maybe one too many times at some point. You know, that, that's, that's, um, that's a great question, and, and that's what we're all, you know, those of us who report in Russia and who observe Russia keep asking ourselves, you know, how... How long can it go for? Will Putin have to escalate? Is he on this sort of escalatory uh, uh, stepladder where there has to be uh, constant aggression, constant uh, nationalism? Um, It's hard to say. I mean, on the one hand, yes, I mean, it would would make sense as, as the economy continues to shrink, as the oil price 
uh, stays low, as people's um, incomes uh, fall uh, through devaluation and high inflation, yes, one would have thought that this is the easiest way of, of dealing with it. You, you have a war in Ukraine, you have the annexation of Crimea, you have military action in Syria, and you're just waiting for the next thing to happen. There is one very big constraint on Putin's actions, um, and, and that comes from uh, this idea of, of virtual reality, because if you, if you construct this virtual television reality, uh, this constant sort of soap opera or drama series, what you can't afford is to have real casualties, because um, television kind of doesn't allow for that. People don't die for real on the television screen. Um, and that has been very noticeable during the campaign in Ukraine when the, when the Russian authorities completely freaked out when the news started uh, sitting out about uh, the number of, of Russian soldiers dead. Uh, they tried to cover it up uh, because people are not prepared to for that kind of losses. People are not prepared for real confrontation. They're totally uh, comfortable with a with the television kind of war, with, which, which looks like a computer game. Uh, but they're not, you know, in Russia, a country of uh, quite low um, birth rate, you know, demographics of 1.5, or certainly less than two children per family, people are just not prepared for their children to go and die in a war for whatever idea. So that remains a very strong constraining factor, which is why all the campaigns that Putin has fought have been limited in, in military scale, and he can't afford a full engagement. Um, so he has to balance between um, continuing to play the nationalist card, but also not letting it get out of hand, and for a conflict to turn into a, a really little one. And finally, Arkady, is there any countervailing political leadership that is rising up in Russia today? Again, uh, great question. Uh, hard to answer. Um, on the one hand, I do believe that there is this, you know, what we saw four years or five years ago in, in Moscow during those street protests was the beginning of a very important uh, Social shift, uh, a new generation, uh, people of you know bigger, you know higher incomes, the middle class, uh, demanding certain changes. I don't think that trend has gone away completely, even if it had been silenced uh, somewhat by by nationalism. But in terms of a political force, uh, yes, there are some politicians like this man Alexei Navalny, who's an anti-corruption blogger and an opposition leader. But um, there isn't anybody obvious. But then, but then again, how many of us uh, in 1986 or let's say 1985, 31 years ago, how many of us had heard of had heard of Mikhail Gorbachev? How many of us had heard of uh, Boris Yeltsin, who became uh, Russia's first president and the man who buried communism? Suddenly. Yeltsin burst into the scene as soon as they started opening up the media. So I don't exclude the same scenario again. But in a country where the media is so tightly controlled by the state, it's just very difficult to say who might be, uh, who might be the biggest challenger to Putin. Arkady Ostrovsky, his book just out from Viking is The Invention of Russia, 
From Gorbachev's freedom to Putin's war, Arkady, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great to be with you. Thank you.